We're all born as human beings with inherent dignity. You see it in the eyes of every human being. But the world strips us so often from that dignity, sometimes a moment after we're born, based on where, who, what. And so for me, dignity is the opposite of poverty in that it's about freedom. It's about choice and opportunity. It's knowing that there's no one above nor below you and that ultimately that you're needed and that you can contribute to this great human endeavor. Hello and welcome to season two of The Story of Woman. In today's world, it can feel like change is happening, but only in the wrong direction. While we agree there's still a lot of work to do, we're reframing that story. I'm your host, Anna Steckline, and each episode of this season, I'll be exploring how women make change happen from those at the top helping to drive it. We'll look at where we are in this long march to equality, what lies ahead, and how important you are in the fight. This isn't a story of a world that's doomed to oppress women forever. This is a story of an opportunity to grow stronger than ever before, exactly as womankind has always done. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining me for episode six of this series that is all about change. And change is something we really get into today. Because in a lot of the episodes for this series, we talk about change, but really looking at the different things that these women are trying to change within their industries and countries and the world. And while we talk about that some today, we also just really dig into change itself, how it happens, what gets in the way, and where to get started if you're feeling there's something in your life or the world around you that you'd like to change. And I'm going to go ahead and guess if you're listening to this podcast, there definitely is something. So get excited because today I am speaking with Jacqueline Novogratz, the founder and CEO of Acumen, a global organization that's changing the way the world tackles poverty using something they pioneered called patient capital, which bridges the gap between the efficiency and scale of market-based approaches and the social impact of pure philanthropy. So basically, they invest in companies that are trying to better the world in some way. These are social impact companies around the world. And because that type of work usually takes a little bit longer to see the fruits of the labor and there's a different metric of success, you know, it's not about fast profits over everything. It's about being patient and putting people and the planet as a main metric of success, which is very different than traditional venture capital. And even though money and profit aren't the center metric of their success, they've created this new model where obviously they still make plenty of money and have profits because they've continued building the company and expanding their impact, which has now reached hundreds of millions of people around the world. So something's working and it's a really revolutionary way of doing business and one that I wish every company in the world would take note of, and that's not even hyperbole. Jacqueline will explain patient capital and what Acumen does even better at the start of our conversation. So this is a business leader episode because Jacqueline's the CEO and founder running a very successful multi-million dollar business, and her company invests in business leaders around the world. But I would say this isn't your standard business leader podcast interview. We don't talk about the practical tactics for building a business or even what it's like to be a female leader in the finance and venture capital space. But what we do talk about are the principles for building a better world because Jacqueline's work is so rooted in people and transforming the world. She has such incredible insight and wisdom into how to be a leader that doesn't center their success around money, power, and fame, and instead centers it around making a meaningful impact for people and for the planet. Jacqueline's been in this work since the mid-80s and has done it all over the world. So she really has so much to teach us. And I could have talked to her for hours because she carries herself with, at the risk of sounding totally cringe, just such a beautiful and open and warm energy. And it's just so clear how much she cares about people and the planet. 
And I know that you'll know what I mean as soon as you hear her talk. She's also put all of these learnings into a book that I highly recommend called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. In it, she lists out 13 practices for building a better world, and it's filled with stories of the social entrepreneurs Acumen supports, as well as the hundreds of millions of people those companies reach all over the world. I'm going to read Jacqueline's very impressive bio real quick, and then on to our conversation. So Jacqueline founded Acumen in 2001, and under her leadership, Acumen has invested $135 million to build 136 social enterprises across Africa, Latin America, South Asia, and the United States, and they have reached more than 323 million people. Acumen has been named one of the world's top 10 most innovative not-for-profits by Fast Company, and Jacqueline has been named one of the top 100 global thinkers by Foreign Policy, one of the 25 smartest people of the decade by The Daily Beast, and one of the world's 100 greatest living minds by Forbes, which also named her to the Forbes 400 Lifetime Achievement Awards for Social Entrepreneurship. She's a New York Times bestselling author of the books Blue Sweater and Manifesto for a Moral Revolution. And beyond all of this, she sits on a number of philanthropic boards and advisory councils. So yes, she's incredibly impressive indeed. Yet again, as you'll hear, just unbelievably humble and down to earth. It's just such a beautiful combination that you don't often see in people, let alone business leaders who run venture capital funds. It's beyond refreshing to see. There is bonus content from this conversation available on Patreon, including Jacqueline's answer to the question longtime listeners of this podcast might remember. I used to always ask the question, what does the story of woman mean to you? And I was going to ask it in this series, but to be honest, the people that I'm speaking with, they're busy people and time is just not something they have. So for the sake of it, I didn't get around to it with everyone, but I did end up asking Jacqueline that question and I'm glad I did because... It was a good one, and not one that I had heard so far. But you can hear it and a whole lot more bonus content from all the other interviews by becoming a patron of the podcast on Patreon. I'll be forever grateful. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Jacqueline Novogratz. Hello, Jacqueline. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Anna. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. We have lots of wonderful, wonderful things to talk about today. And I feel like you are uniquely positioned to talk about the topic that this series is covering, which is all about change and change makers, looking at what it takes to change the world as a society and as individuals. So Acumen the company that you started 22 years ago, is an incredibly important change-making organization because it enables people to become change-makers themselves. It's not a philanthropy, it's not a charity, but rather you use the power of entrepreneurship and markets to invest in companies and people that are making the world a better place. And you really pioneered that approach. So I'd love to just start by having you tell us a bit more about Acumen, about what it is and what makes it different from your traditional VC or investment company. Thanks. Sure. So Acumen is at the top, a nonprofit global organization that really is focused on using the tools of business and leadership to solve big problems of poverty and build a world of dignity. We essentially do three things. We invest in ventures in two ways, with philanthropic-backed what we call pioneering capital in for-profit companies that are at the start of trying to create real shifts, bring energy, healthcare, agriculture, education to the poor. And then we have another four funds, which is about 250 million in for-profit impact funds to help take these companies to the next level and other companies. The second thing we do is around supporting entrepreneurial leaders with, again, the tools of business and also a grounding in what we call the moral imagination. And then the third is what we call alliances. As we've been working in a particular industry like energy, you get to a point where if you're actually going to solve the problem, you can't solve it by yourself. 
And that's where we will then build on our work and find other partners to tackle the problem wholesale. Lovely. And we'll talk about some of the problems that you're tackling and the moral imagination. But I like this line that I read about what Acumen does. It uses the power of entrepreneurship to build a world where everyone has the opportunity to live with dignity. So I'm curious what dignity means to you and why is that your focus? We're all born as human beings with inherent dignity. You see it in the eyes of every human being. But the world strips us so often from that dignity, sometimes a moment after we're born, based on where, who, what. And so for me, dignity is the opposite of poverty in that it's about freedom. It's about choice and opportunity. It's knowing that there's no one above nor below you and that ultimately that you're needed and that you can contribute to this great human endeavor, dignity. I love that. And it really comes through reading the stories about the lives that you're touching and changing. We'll get into examples next, but you can really see the power of dignity. And I just feel like that's not something that's really talked about and certainly not in business terms. (laughs) It's not a measurable outcome, some might argue, but maybe you feel differently about that. I do feel differently about it. Some of the most important things, of course, are the most difficult to measure. If you want to help women, which is what so many organizations have wanted to do for many, many years with the best of intentions, we often would give women cook stoves, little kerosene or firewood-based stoves. I saw this in the early 80s when I was working in Rwanda. A well-intended nonprofit would just distribute a ton, thousands of cook stoves so that women could now cook inside the house and have an easier way to make their food. But no one ever asked the women how they cooked, when they cooked, what it took for them to cook. We didn't really recognize the incredible smoke that was coming out of those stoves. And often the stoves were poorly designed in terms of what the women actually needed, and they would just be thrown out or used for other purposes. That's not dignity. That's charity in a way that sees low-income people as passive recipients waiting for a handout. Dignity is designing a stove that reduces the smoke that is beautiful and a woman can be proud of, that is affordable so that ultimately she's spending less time either collecting firewood or less money buying charcoal. She's saving money. She and her children are healthier. They're going to school and she therefore has more agency, more ability to participate. You can measure a lot of that. Yeah, and you do. You have technology now, right? Where you're getting all this qualitative data from people that are benefiting from the companies, yeah? We do. If we've helped build a company, we have the ability now to text five, ten thousand 10,000 customers at a time, say they were buying a stove, and ask them a series of questions from which we can then deduce how are their lives changing or not? And also, what are they like and not like? about whatever product is being sold to them. And so it also creates a two-way street, but also reinforces one of our core values, which is listen to voices unheard. That if we are serious about solving problems of poverty, then the poor themselves need a voice in both designing and also telling us if we're on course or not. Absolutely. I think that is... I mean, it seems like a kind of obvious core value to have, but it's really not. You're pioneering that approach as well of listening to the communities that you're serving and asking what they need instead of coming in and assuming you know best. We're so often taught in all of the elite schools that we are there to solve problems and we want to solve problems as human beings. It's so driven by goodness. And yet there's a lot of I too often in the solving of those problems. And so we go into a community where we think people don't have education and may not know what's best for them. And there's some truth in terms of traditional education and not knowing what opportunities are out there. But imposing top-down solutions, neither has ever worked, nor does it invite people into changing their own lives. 
and we all lose as a result of that. And that's the real shift that has to be made. But it means that we have to continue to be audacious in big goals that we have, but to hold that audacity with a sense of humility, that the problems haven't been solved for a reason, and that we probably aren't individually going to be the ones to solve them. We need other people. Love that. Love that. So I'd love to hear about the people who are solving the problems. Can you tell us about the types of companies or anything you want to say broadly about what you look for? And then I would love to hear an example or two. Absolutely. So the way Acumen works is we'll meet an entrepreneur with a big idea and a company that she's starting to build. And we will invest this patient capital, take philanthropy and invest with the expectation that we're in for 10 to 15 years. So patient, that allows them to try, fail, try again. We also support fellows who are on their journey as well. One of those fellows is a woman named Sara Said Kuram in Pakistan. She is a woman doctor. And after her first child had postpartum depression, because like so many of her fellow women doctors, the expectation in her family was that she would stop working. 30% of all Pakistani women doctors don't work after marriage really to save herself, to save her life. She had the nurse at the clinic that she worked at just set up a little camera on her computer and thought, well, maybe I can at least contribute something if I could be in the office while I'm at home with my child. And that was the beginning of a company called Sehat Kahani. By taking that step, she had the insight that Not only was Pakistan missing the huge opportunity of 30% of its most highly trained people in the medical profession, but that rural women across the country had so little access to healthcare, and rural women want to see a woman doctor. And so Sehat Kahani connects women doctors using telemedicine to rural clinics where a local practitioner is there with the patients but then they will beam in doctors now all over the world. Because during the pandemic, we had a very quick period where Acumen made emergency grants for either just real human misery or real innovation. And Sara saw an opportunity to take an app, make it free, get it out to everyone because people couldn't go to clinics. The government had shut the private clinics down. And to date, They have served more than a million women. The government has given her not only permission to put women from other countries on the platform, women doctors, but she now partners with government to bring telemedicine into the overall healthcare system of Pakistan. That's just one of the 1,300 fellows that are part of Acumen Academy. That is phenomenal. And you can start to see real quick how the number of people that you have impacted is in the hundreds of millions because this is one of many. It's one of, well, 1,300 fellows and then 150 companies, an ambulance company that has brought 50 million people to hospital in India, an off-grid solar electricity company has brought 100 million people off-grid solar. And so what I've learned in 22 years running Acumen is that change is possible. It's not easy. But you can move the needle on big issues if you have the courage to start often very small and hold on to very big dreams. Amazing. And that is exactly what I would like to get into is how you see change happening because you've had this amazing perspective of so much change around the world and all these different industries But first, I just want to mention one more company that I read about in your book, Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, which is a phenomenal book about practices to build a better world. And mine's Jacqueline for all the lessons that she's learned creating and running Acumen and even all her work in the decades before that. It's really phenomenal. But I loved reading about 
Fool, is that how you pronounce it yes. with a PH? <laughs> Which I believe means flower in Hindi. So we're not talking about fools, but Fool collects flowers from Hindu temples in India that are brought there by millions of people every day. And before that, the flowers were being dumped in the Ganges, causing all kinds of harm, both to the river and to the people that would wade in this sacred river. And Fool found a way to turn these flowers into incense, which is used daily for cultural and religious practices. And what I really love about this story is it really exemplifies what I noticed is that the companies that you work with and these amazing change makers, they're not just solving one problem. It's like they're solving one problem and then they find ways to solve other big problems while they're solving that one problem they initially focused on. So with this company, it wasn't just about the environment and the health of the people in the river, but they then dedicated themselves to employing women from the manual scavenger caste, which, as you point out, is one of the most marginalized groups on earth. They employed these women to be the ones who turn the flowers into the incense and is a company that is dedicated to paying them well, providing them with transport, health insurance, daily cups of tea, and even giving them a bottle of water clean water to take home every day at the end of the day. And I mean, talk about dignity. You had quotes in the book from these women talking about how it was the first time anyone ever tried to teach them anything, the first time they were treated with respect, the first time some of them didn't have to sit on the ground. So that was just a really amazing story to read about. And I think really exemplifies, yeah, how so many of these companies are not just solving one problem, but multiple at once. And it's a really beautiful thing to see. It is. And Anna, this is where the moral imagination comes in. Because Ankit Ankarwal, the founder of Fool, would have had a much easier path just by collecting flowers from the temples and convincing the temple priests to give him the flowers rather than put them in the Ganges, as you said. But the commitment then to hire women only from the scavenger caste. These women previously carried human waste in baskets on their heads. That was their job. It was very hard for him to break that status quo. The first factory that they rented ended up throwing them out, destroying their equipment. Then Ankit could only find another factory that was somewhat far away from where the women lived. And then that's when he hired a bus but then he had to convince a bus driver to work with these women. And so it's a determination to build not just inclusion, which is so important, but inclusion in a way that really does hold up dignity and takes a lot of risk often. We have a fellow in Pakistan. She's created sort of a glam squad where she works with low-income women to go into the homes of higher income women to do their hair and nails and other beauty services. A number of those women are from the Christian religion, which is in a similar way seen as very, you could almost say low caste, where Christian women are not expected to sit on furniture in a Muslim household, et cetera, et cetera, by some people, obviously not by all people, but really breaking taboos and using the tools of business to provide women with the confidence, the economic freedom, over time they actually see, and I just had a great conversation with many of these women, that they have things that the women in whose households they operate do not have. I think that's when we start to see each other more fully as a human race. It's beautiful. And I wanna go back to what you were saying just before these examples, as much as I could just keep going on talking about the specific stories, you'll have to read the book to learn about more of the stories. You started talking about change and how change often starts small. So I'd love to have you expand on that and kind of share how you see change that is lasting and systemic happening. You know, How do you think about how that process works, what that looks like? So Gandhi famously said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And in the lives of social entrepreneurs, and I put myself in that category, 
that's a pretty fair assessment of how change happens. First, the kind of innovative change that I'm most interested in that fully disrupts systems and puts our humanity, including the poor at the center, not just profit and the individual, starts at the edges. And I would put acumen in that category. When I started acumen, the idea that you could take philanthropy and invest in for-profit companies for 10 to 15 years to change the status quo and build solutions to poverty was seen as naive. I could find a lot of less kind words and not taken seriously whatsoever. And at the beginning, everyone just thought it would fail. And then we got to a point where people did call me terrible things in a way that was tantamount to laughing. And then there was a point of not just fighting, but competing. This was the exciting piece was then suddenly I started to see all around us, new impact funds springing up all over the place. And now, of course, it's taken for granted that we need different kinds of capital to solve our problems. And impact investing is a major part of that. The most compelling example that I've seen in ways that have fundamentally shifted the way I think about change is in electricity, in the off-grid solar sector. In 2007, 1.5 billion people had no access to electricity. 1.5 billion. Two guys came into our office, Ned Tozen and Sam Goldman, and they had a $30 solar light and this big dream that they were going to eradicate kerosene, which is what most people count on for their electricity. And they didn't really know what they were doing, but they were willing to try. And what they had, again, was that character, that deep listening and moral imagination that they saw the poor as customers. For six or seven years, Anna, they failed. And they would try one thing. And we did not understand that they were fundamentally creating a new industry that had never existed, where there was no infrastructure, there were no distribution systems. The people they were reaching made one, two, three dollars per day, so very little income. There was no financing what existed in abundance was corruption, bureaucracy, and a status quo that had it in their interest, the kerosene mafias and the diesel mafias, not to let solar electricity succeed. And so I learned a lot about sabotage as well. Over time, however, low-income people themselves saw the power of this, that if you could buy this light, you would never have to buy kerosene again, and it would be clean and affordable, and then you could buy more products on top of that. We learned that a new industry was being built, and so we started to invest not only in the solar production, but also distribution companies and financing companies, about 40. Those 40 companies have now brought clean light and electricity to 230 million low-income people, and that represents about 30% of all people with off-grid solar, light, and electricity on the planet. It also shows you that we as a world could actually bring electricity to every household. And that is what I'm really focused on now. And acumen is, how do we do that in a way that doesn't leave the 200 plus million people who are the most vulnerable behind? Because it is within our power. It is within our reach. And because these very early companies stayed in the game for 17 years. They began to influence policymakers. They began to influence the bigger institutions. And now the world is ready, I believe, to take on this big challenge. And I want us to really internalize that we are capable of doing really hard things. And it often starts with two guys coming out of school in a $30 light. <sighs> Wow, that is incredible. Starting with two guys with a $30 light and the hundreds of millions that have already been impacted in the infrastructure to scale that and to, what was the first number you said? One and a half billion people? One and a half billion. We're down to about 770 million as a world. A lot of that in India and China came from on-grid electricity. Unfortunately, some of that through coal and oil but about 450 million came from off-grid solar, which is better for the planet, better for people, and more resilient to climate crisis. Incredible. 
All right, so let's talk about these two guys coming in with their lights. I want to talk about, you know, I've kind of looked at change and how this first small action can grow and ripple and get us to real systemic and lasting change. But now I want to talk about what does it take to be those two guys? You know, you have worked with many people like this. You yourself are one. You've started up Acumen among many other things. So what are some of the lessons that you have learned? And again, this is laid out in the book. It's literally called Practices to Build a Better World with um, I think 12 or 13 lessons listed there. And we can't get into all of them today. But what are some of the lessons that you've learned? Well, first, just the courage to start. All of us, think about all of the conversations that we're having around the world. We're conscious of all the problems that we have. And most of us are really good at articulating those problems. Very few of us say, I want to do something about it, in part because the problems can seem so overwhelming, or we look at ourselves and we think, I don't know how to do this. What differentiates social entrepreneurs from everybody else is that they love the word impossible and they have the courage to just start. The second, and I think it's the most important characteristic of all entrepreneurs, is they have the grit and the determination to go the distance. Inevitably, they will have failures along the way. This work is really hard, and yet they have the courage to fall, fail, and get up and do it again. We often say, if you aren't willing to fail, you will not succeed, period. I would say the other three quickly. One is listening, not just with your ears, but with all parts of yourselves. It sometimes feels in this moment of history that no one's listening to each other. And if we really listen to another, particularly across lines of difference, they'll often tell you what they need. And our best entrepreneurs are incredible listeners. And then finally, I've mentioned this phrase before, but they have the moral imagination. They might be driven by empathy. Uh, Empathy is often where an urge to help and serve begins, but they don't stop there. They move to getting close, immersing, understanding the problem from the perspective of those they want to serve. And then they start to look at the system around and see, well, where can I really make that change? And whether you're talking about the flower company, Fool, or the lighting company, or what Sarah did with healthcare, those are the ones that really succeed. But just starting listening, determination, and moral imagination are critical elements. Amazing. I like this quote from your book about just starting. You wrote, while there are skills to gain and character traits to develop, there is only one way to begin. Just start and let the work teach you. You don't plan your way into finding purpose. You live into it. I really liked that. And I think there's so much to be said because, like you said, we try to get to the end, right? You're trying to tackle poverty, one of the most complex and pervasive problems that humanity has. But if you just thought about that end of eradicating all poverty, which of course you'll probably keep in your head with this big imagination that you have, you may never get off the starting line, but you don't really know, I guess, where you're going to end up. No. Even if you had told me that we would be working in energy, electricity, I'm not sure I would have believed you when we started (laughs) Acumen. I didn't know the difference between AC and DC. (laughs) And I'm not an engineer. I'm not a techie. But I did see that energy is fundamental. And if you care about women, you have to care about electricity because it is so connected to work and health and education and 80% of people in poverty are women and children. This is a fundamental building block. So I started to care about energy, learned everything I could and hired people a lot smarter than me on the technical sides. I think that's the other good characteristic of a leader, surrounding yourself with the people who have the knowledge and experience in these areas, because you're never yourself going to have all the answers. So being able to recognize that. I think that's right. This idea that there's the one super person is such a misguided one that the real change makers 
are self-aware enough to recognize what their own superpowers are, but also where they are not strong and partner with those people and sometimes organizations that have the strength that they do not have because we can't solve these things by ourselves. No, absolutely not. We'll be right back after this short break to hear Jacqueline talk about why women specifically are fundamental to tackling the problems of poverty. So you mentioned women there again with the electricity, and I want to talk about women for a second and how you see women as integral to solving the problems of poverty and some of these problems that you're trying to tackle. Women are integral at every level. Acumen has a gender lens in the way that we invest. So we look both at at the entrepreneurial level, at the customer level, at the jobs created level to really try to understand. Because if you are talking about poverty, as I said, you're talking about women and children. And so I would say as change makers, as entrepreneurs, women and all people who have seen themselves as outsiders have an advantage, particularly in this moment of our history. When you're an outsider, you see the dominant system from the perspective of the outside. You understand what makes it work, how you need to code switch or shift so that you can navigate through it. If you are part of the dominant system, you might actually not recognize those obstacles that get in other people's ways. And so the advantage of being an outsider is that you can have a deeper insight into the people who've been overlooked and underestimated and the structures that need to be built for them, in part because we've been overlooked and underestimated. I see some of the most extraordinary enterprises, nonprofit and for-profit, being led by women. A woman named Teresa Njeroge in Kenya was imprisoned for a crime she didn't commit with her three-month-old baby. And it was the first time she ever saw the condition of women in prison. And then from their perspective, created an organization that would help empower them to have jobs and opportunities once they left. But her orientation was around the people who had been left out. Then within, as you build these enterprises, women as employees, so many of the women, like the delight agents, the women who then go door to door selling these delight products, as one woman named Mary said to me, I don't want to be paid, even though they do pay me, because look, I'm 68 years old and we've never had electricity in our village. And now I can go to people I know and people that I don't know, and I can give them the chance to be part of the world that everybody else gets to be part of. So I'm not really an agent, I'm an angel, and I'm changing my country. And so it releases this energy. And then the women who are the customers, and in fact, one of my favorite stories, sticking with delight, and you can see these layers in each of these stories, was a woman in Rajasthan. I'd been going through all these villages And I was talking to the women customers to ask them what gave them the courage to buy the lights, how did it change their lives, et cetera, et cetera. And one woman told me that the reason she bought the light and liked it better than a kerosene lantern, which is still used by so many people around the world, is because she doesn't feel the stress that she used to feel. And I said, could you help me understand? And she said, well, when I had a kerosene lantern, I was always worried that one of my children might knock it over and get burned or worse. And I said, well, that's really interesting, madam, because the young man who started Delight was living in a village in West Africa when his neighbor's kerosene lantern fell over and burned down the house and nearly killed the eldest son. And she looked at me literally with tears and she said, please, madam, would you thank that young man for me? So when I think about how we so often look at success as money, power, fame. We're not going to create the world that we all can flourish in. But those individuals that are drawn to creating solutions that release other human beings' energies are the ones that end up getting thanked 
from a woman on the other side of the world for something that they've done, even though they might never know or ever meet that person. That is how I see women interacting at every level of change. Wow. All of the goosebumps. I've got all of the goosebumps hearing that story. That's that's incredible. And speaking of incredible women interacting with change, I want to talk for a minute about you. While we sadly don't have time for your full story and how you arrived to this point, I do think that it's really important for people to understand that people like yourself don't just magically arrive to where they are one day. There's a whole long journey that takes place presumably with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Can you tell us a little bit about how you arrived to where you are today? What has that journey been like? A lot of failures, as you said. I always wanted to change the world as a kid, and yet also came from a family where when I got a job offer to go into banking, I took it when I first got out. But early in my career as a banker in Latin America, I saw how the poor were excluded from the banks and thought, there has to be a better way. That took me on a circuitous journey to Rwanda, where I was still very young, 25, when I helped a small group of Rwandan women start the first microfinance bank in the country. That was hard, and I was very underestimated. But what I learned is that a small group of people really could change history. And Dutarembere, the name of that bank, still exists today, which is something I'm very, very proud of. 35 years old. But then a few years later, the genocide happened in Rwanda. And many of my friends were killed. The co-founders of Dutarembere ended up playing every role of the genocide from being killed to being bystanders to being major perpetrator, planner of the genocide. That was the moment, Anna, where I had to really look deep at what it means to be human. And in a way, move away from the binary that I had been raised with, that there are good people and bad people, rich, poor, all of these false binaries. Suddenly, in one particular moment of my life, looking at a woman who was part of planning a genocide, I realized that monsters and angels exist in every one of us, that they are the broken parts of ourselves, the insecurities, and that it's really easy in times of crisis, like the time we are in now, for demagogic leaders to prey on those insecurities and make us do terrible things. I also realized that the charity versus investment approach was equally a false binary based on equally overly simplistic views of human nature. And that led to the birth of acumen, that if we could take capital as a means, not as the end in and of itself, And if we could learn to control that capital, we could find those individuals with the character to see low-income people as full human beings who wanted to solve their problems, not as mouths to feed, not as people to fear, but as full human beings with all the complexities we all have. And maybe, just maybe, if we stuck with them long enough, accompanied them, not just with our financial capital, but our social capital, our networks, our management assistant, maybe we would solve some problems. I don't think I understood then that we could fundamentally shift systems. And now I feel unapologetically that the conversation the world needs to have is how do we find the right kind of capital and support the right kind of character to solve problems that truly do build the worlds with our humanity and the earth at the center, not simply profit and the individual, because that's where we went a bit astray. Do you have any answers to those questions of how do we find? The answer lies in all of us. The answer starts with redefining success away from money, power, fame. The answer lies with Asking ourselves, are we giving more to the world than we're taking? The answer lies in every one of us thinking about what we can do to contribute to build a different kind of world. What gives me hope is that there is a new generation of entrepreneurial builders that aren't waiting around for anybody to solve the problems because the status quo, I have also learned, exists for a reason. 
it does not want to change. And so it goes back to your really great question about where change happens. It starts at the edges. If it's done right, it gains an unstoppable momentum. We are living in a perilous time and there are equal forces that are dividing and creating more inequality and more climate destruction. But I am obviously an optimist after almost 40 years of doing this work. <laughs> and I see a level of entrepreneurial energy and focus on possibility like I have never experienced in my lifetime. Is that what keeps you hopeful? The main thing I wanted to ask, what keeps you hopeful? That keeps me hopeful. And it's not a easy hope. It's a truly hard edged hope because it's also based in seeing how much the world has changed. When I first went to Rwanda in 1986, 40% of the world lived in extreme poverty. The average woman had eight children in Africa. 20% of children died before they were five. Today, less than 8% of the world lives in extreme poverty. Still too many, but it's a massive change. Women have significantly reduced the number of children that they have. They are much healthier. There is a whole new conversation happening in the world. And so I think I bring that benefit of many years of doing this work when I will sit in Nairobi and ride my first electric motorcycle and think about how innovation is happening there before it's happening in your city in London, where I think those <laughs> delivery drivers could all use a completely quiet electric motorcycle. Yeah. So that's what gives me hope, that I'm seeing innovation at the edges that could change the way we do everything. People who are imagining our health systems, our energy systems, our education systems, fully anew in ways that not only are building where systems haven't really existed, but where the West could learn a thing or two to integrate into the systems that aren't working for everyone. Definitely the West could learn a thing or two. And I like how you took us back a few decades back through some statistics, painted a little bit of what reality was like back then. Because while I don't ever think we should ever say, yeah, we're happy now because it's better than it was, I think it's really important to understand, zoom out as far as we can and to see the whole picture of how much progress we have made so that we can celebrate the people, the change makers that have come before us and have gotten us to this point and carry the work on. I completely agree with you. And also to acknowledge the shoulders on which we stand. A lot of work has been done and now it is to each of us to stand on those shoulders and dream of things that might be so big we don't solve them in our lifetime. But what better way to live a life of meaning than to take on those kinds of big problems? I loved that quote in your book or where you talked about standing on the shoulders of those who came before us. And it's a beautiful sentiment. Something else that you've hit on, but I just want to ask you directly, you call for a moral revolution in your book. I mean, it's called Manifesto for a Moral Revolution, and you've hit on the different points of that. But just to ask you directly, can you tell us what is a moral revolution? And is there anything you can say about how we might be able to take part? Sure. So first, I would say that when people hear the phrase moral revolution, it can easily go to feeling that it comes from a place of righteousness or ideology, when in fact, this is not moral, like a set of texts being passed down from on high. The moral of the revolution is that the growing acknowledgement, not just generationally, but through science, that we are fully interconnected and I dare say interdependent, not only on all human beings, but on all living things. Every plant shares DNA in their cells with us. And so the moral revolution starts from a place that puts not the individual and profit at the center of all of our systems, but recognizes that interdependence and thus insists on our shared humanity and the sustainability of the earth there. 
that requires a different set of principles than maximize profit and it will be good for everyone or protect your borders and it will be good for us. We have to move away from a worldview and a way of leading based on I win if you lose, I'm right if you're wrong, but rather to acknowledge that interdependence and move from a new set of tenets that recognizes what South Africans say, Ubuntu, I am because you are. Where we can learn from Hinduism, Namaste, the God in me sees the God in you. If we shifted that orientation to build our companies, our organizations, our schools, from a perspective that each of us has the opportunity to be part of a revolution that isn't screaming in the streets, although sometimes you need to do that, but is more an orientation that comes from the inside out. The world could be a very different place. The joy of my life is I work with a growing community of builders who aren't here to be cynical or to complain, but to focus on creating those solutions that do include people who've been overlooked and underestimated and do so in a way that also acknowledges that we have to protect the earth. So that's really what I see as the moral revolution, a new set of skills, having hard conversations across lines of difference, seeing identity not as a weapon or a way of dividing ourselves, but rather recognizing that we all have multiple identities within, and it's an incredible tool. I like you at the head of this revolution. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there is a head, Ada. I think oh, that's, yeah, that's that's true. That's, that's going back to the point. old model. Oh, man. <laughs> that is deeply ingrained, isn't it? <laughs> it's deeply ingrained. Although I do think, again, I know how much you're thinking about women. I do think it's where women have a real advantage because we're used to collaborating and enabling others to help get things done. And that's what we all have to get really good at. So for the women and people and everyone listening who want to be a part of this moral revolution, and again, we've kind of been talking about this a little bit already, but I want to ask directly because I do feel like now more than ever, people are realizing, you know, especially with the pandemic, we're given all this time to think and we're realizing that these traditional measures of success just aren't as satisfying as we thought that they were going to be. And people are wanting to find their purpose, but can have a hard time figuring out what that purpose is and an even harder time deciding to give up a perhaps comfortable and secure job in order to pursue it. And I know we said at the beginning or towards the beginning about just starting, but I'm wondering what you would say to anyone who wants to just start, but can't even really think about, well, where? Just start where? Just start how? Any other words of wisdom that you could share on that front? It's such a great time to ask me because literally yesterday I had a 24-year-old in my office in a panic. And so, as we said, just start. That purpose doesn't come to someone sitting at the starting blocks wondering what their purpose is. The first move is to look around and see what interests you. Is there a problem? It might be trash on the street. A lot of young people I know who are really interested in trash have started to create collectives where they'll go and pick trash up as a community. That's a great place to start. Once you take that first step, let the work teach you, as you said before, what am I learning? Inevitably, you end up learning not only about your effectiveness or your lack of effectiveness, but how the system works and where you might fit into the system. So you take a step, it tells you where to take the next step and so on and so forth. Before you know it, you have a path. And that path ultimately leads you to purpose. The guy who I was talking about before with cook stoves is named Peter Scott. And he was literally a tree hugger. He went to what's now known as the Congo. And he literally tied himself to trees as his <laughs> approach. <laughs> that is a literal tree hugger, yes. He's literally <laughs> a tree hugger with a chain and a tree. And then he realized that he wasn't going to save a lot of trees that way. And ultimately, he started a cook stove company. Then he built a manufacturing plant in Kenya, the biggest one on the continent now for cook stoves. 
then the carbon markets started to look for opportunities to reduce carbon. As I said before, cook stoves take a lot of wood and are one of the number one reasons for deforestation across the African continent. And so there's enormous revenue available through the carbon markets. And Peter is now just growing and reaching so many, so many people. He's getting more radical because he's taking the money he gets from the carbon credits, not keeping it for his own company, but reducing the price so that the women and men who actually do the work of not cutting down trees now will actually benefit. If you had told Peter 20 years ago that this would be the trajectory, he completely would not have believed you. He couldn't have imagined it, just like I couldn't have imagined my trajectory. He had the courage to tie himself to a tree as his first act <laughs> and learn. Let's start. Just start. I mean, that, yeah, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning that you can't know. You can't know where you're going to get to. If you're in the business of change, I mean, that's the whole point. It hasn't happened before. And in a way, you have to just start and then just start again because so many things in the world happen to you in ways that are out of your control. And so learn the art of the pivot, which is another way of saying just start. And then just to read two more lines from your book along this theme, you said, when you don't know where to start, following a leader who inspires you can be a powerful strategy. And I really liked that. And it's kind of a concrete action, you know, to tuck away in people's heads. And then the other one that I really like, this came from a blog post of one of your Acumen fellows was, the question isn't what problem you want to solve, but how do you want to spend the next 40 years of your life? And I thought that was so powerful to put it like that. It is. And that, interestingly, I was just talking to that fellow this morning, that organization that he started. The conversation we had was very much about feeling like a failure and only starting an organization, Amal Academy, that was only touching about 300 young people. It's now graduated over 10,000. And he has given leadership to a local person and is actually focusing on the climate. And so he's not spending the next 40 years only doing that, but he is spending his whole life focused on and committed to serving in the way that uses him best in the different chapters of his life. And I think that's also part of just starting, following leaders, seeing what you learn, being honest with yourself and moving from there. I think that so much of this moment in history is about, as I said, it's an inner revolution, not one from above or below. But we have to start thinking ourselves as citizens, not as consumers, and seeing ourselves in relation to each other is just so critical. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you want to say more about that? How do we see ourselves in relationship to others? I understand what you mean, but it's kind of conceptual. Is there any way to bring that to light a little more? This is actually a story that goes back to dignity, and it's a fast one. But I was visiting one of our Indian companies, and I just stepped outside of the factory for a moment, and I saw these four women who were from the very, very low caste. And they were called what's called headloaders. They were carrying big pieces of equipment from the factory to these waiting trucks. They were taking a break. And we didn't have a word of English between us or any language between us. And yet I could see the dignity in their eyes. And somehow I just started communicating them without language. It turned into five women in peals of laughter and unbridled joy. And I think of those women all the time as a reminder that they're the ones that do the work that make my life possible. Every time I brush my teeth, every time I make a cup of coffee, every time you spray perfume, that all comes from people who are toiling and doing the work. And for them, I feel so grateful. And I also feel this sense of obligation to be more cognizant of all the people along the way who are responsible for the goods and services, the products that we use. We are part of each other because we are part of each other's lives. And the decisions we make have implications every day on people that we might never know or ever meet. That's what I mean by see each other. 
I'm really glad I asked you to elaborate because that was, again, a beautiful story and a way to really visualize what you meant there. And there's the connection to other people, and there's also the connection to ourselves. You talked in the book about the importance of personal transformation when it comes to the moral revolution and making an impact on the world. Can you talk about that a little bit? I live in the world of, on the one hand, some of the wealthiest people in the world, philanthropists, investors, and I'm helping to build companies for some of the poorest people in the world. And so often, philanthropists and investors both think in terms of the transformation they're making, the dignity they're giving to the poor. And what we miss is that the real transformation is a mutual transformation. It is the recognition that within the interaction that we can have with one another lies the seeds of our mutual dignity. And that in a way, I don't get dignity unless other people have dignity. And we as a human race don't get dignity unless every one of us has it. So that takes transformation in how we interact with each other, how we listen to each other, in the companies that we build, in the decisions that we make. And if we're not willing to change ourselves, and I'm not talking just about philosophically, I'm talking about really change ourselves, then we're never going to change the world in ways that we all dream of changing the world. Yeah. Is there any further wisdom or inspiration that you wish to share? Anything at all or that we didn't cover you'd like to talk about today? I would just reiterate that change is possible and that we're all needed. And that sometimes when we hear about other people doing things, particularly that feel far away or out of reach. We might think that it's not for me or let them do it. And yet there's no work like this work on the planet. People sometimes say to me, isn't it hard? Don't you get depressed? And sure, show me somebody who does any kind of job, who doesn't have days that are hard and doesn't get depressed. But I would also say that making a decision to work on the toughest problems of our world is a decision to be stretched, to be part of the human journey, if you will. And I can't imagine a better way to create meaning and feel more deeply alive. I talk a lot about the beautiful struggle, in part because there's so much beauty at every step of the journey to be found. If you feel fearful about taking a step in a different direction, then think about Eleanor Roosevelt's wisdom, which is that every day we should do something that scares us because that is the way that we change. Yes, Eleanor had lots of wisdom to impart on us. That's a very good one. If people take one thing away from this conversation with you today, what would you want it to be? I mean, (laughs) definitely just start. (laughs) Know that the world not only needs you, but that the world is waiting for you. And that there is truly a movement of people who want to build solutions in every country on the planet. I have been to more corners of more villages and more slums, and I have never been in a place that doesn't have individuals who want to live from their own agency and make life better for others. Find those people. Be inspired by those people. Most important, be those people. Wonderful. What a great note to end on. Thank you, Jacqueline, so much for participating. This was educational and inspiring in equal measure. It's such a pleasure to get to speak with you. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for this really beautiful podcast. I so appreciate it and wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and think that we need more of women's stories in the world, be sure to share with a friend and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to help us beat those pesky algorithms. Follow us on socials for more content from the episodes and a look behind the scenes. And for access to bonus content and ad-free listening, consider becoming a patron of the podcast. This is the best way to help me continue to put out more and better episodes. 
or you can buy me a metaphorical coffee. All of this goes directly into production costs. And in exchange, you'll receive my eternal gratitude and a good night's sleep, knowing that you are helping to finally change the story of mankind to the story of humankind. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Anna Steckline. It was edited by Maddie Searle, with communication support by Joe Cummings. A special thanks to Amanda Brown, Kate York, and Dan Kindle for their ongoing production support and invaluable advising. Tune in to the next episode of The Story of Woman, where I speak with Carly Zakin and Daniel Weisberg, co-founders and co-CEOs of The Skim, a digital media company dedicated to succinctly giving women the information they need to make confident decisions. How are women doing? Women that are bearing the brunt of this, women who were really set back decades during the pandemic that had been working and studying and climbing their whole lives with this promise of being able to build off of the decades of progress that came for us before us. And now a lot of that has been set back. So it's not a surprise, right, that it's not doing well. I think that instead of being disheartened by it, our hope is that we're able to actually shed light on it and to say like, this is what you can't hide. This is what we need to support. Because if we don't support it, we're gonna have a huge problem with our workforce, which we're already seeing and it's only gonna get worse. If you don't support women and working women, you're gonna have a huge problem with your birth rate and that's gonna have huge effects for society. And a special thanks to our Patreon collaborators, Veronica Linares from Values Leadership Consulting, transforming mindsets to put humanity and the planet at the heart of leadership. Christine Beasy from Untangle Money, creators of financial plans designed specifically for women. Dr. Julie Allig of JLA Analytics, your data's talking, are you listening? Joanna Cummings, editor of the Grub Street Journal, the magazine for people who make magazines. Jill Quigley from The Giving Grove, Little Orchards, Big Impact, a nationwide network of little orchards. Andrew Planet, advocate for naming our species human rather than man, and for joint matrilineal surnames. To share your name, business, or message at the end of every episode, sign up to be a patron of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash the story of woman. Get your message out there, listen to bonus content, and rest well, knowing that you're doing your part in helping to elevate the story of woman.